Well, today is the 23rd and final sermon in our Gospel of John sermon series. 21 chapters, 23 sermons. Not too shabby, if I do say so. Uh, John chapter 20, verse, verses 30 to 31, is the climax of this Gospel. It's the book's conclusion, and it contains the pur- purposing of the entire book. And John's purpose in writing the fourth Gospel is not academic. The Apostle has written this theological biography of Jesus in order that men and women may believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. The Jesus whose portrait John has drawn in this Gospel. Look at chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. True life, friend, eternal life. And we'll be returning to this hope at the end of our sermon today. But, as John writes verse 31 of chapter 20, he comes to an editorial decision. He could just end his gospel right here. It seems like a natural place to do so. Or, he could wind things down with a postscript, an epilogue, that tells us what happens to the characters in his book, while shining the light back on what's happened before. That's just what he does. Uh, The role of the denouement in literature, despite it being hard to pronounce and even harder to spell, is very important. The denouement is the final outcome of the story, and it generally occurs after the climax of the plot. So, think of your favorite book, think of your favorite movie. The climax is when the guy finally gets the girl. Or the hero catches the villain after the car chase. But the denouement is the short scene after the climax, where things are clarified and all the loose ends are wrapped up. So it's when Sherlock Holmes explains to Dr. Watson precisely how he figured out who the culprit is. Or in Romeo and Juliet, it's when the Montagues and the Capulets agree to stop their rivalry to avoid further tragedy. So what we need to ask now is this. What does John chapter 21, the denouement, add? How is the reader served? What loose ends are tied up by John taking things one chapter further as he relates Jesus' third resurrection appearance to his disciples? Well, for one, this chapter serves as a a paradigm of sorts for how Christians are to face suffering for the faith. Through the Apostle Peter's life, we see that suffering and Christian discipleship are tied together. They're tied together. And and Jesus tells Peter that he, Peter, is going to be crucified for his faith in this chapter. And then Jesus tells Peter, follow me. What does that mean? Christian, what, what sort of expectations should we have for our life as a disciple of Jesus Christ as it regards our comfort and our freedom and our autonomy? What room have we made in life for sacrifice and for suffering? Another contribution of John 21 is the Apostle Peter, his reconciliation with Jesus after his famous threefold denial 
and he's given a pastoral commission by his resurrected Lord. That is a very, very important loose end to tie up. Christians are glad for chapter 21, and not just for Peter's sake alone, but because it preaches to us. Beloved, when we sin, when we fail, how does Jesus respond to us? Thank God for Peter's reinstatement. It truly shows us Jesus' own heart. So let's jump right in. John 21. What happens first? You can see in your handout, number one, the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. This is for the third time now. Verse 1 and 2. Afterward, Jesus appeared again, or in the Greek text, he revealed himself. I like that. He revealed himself to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. And then John lists the apostles present that morning who witnessed now this revelation. There are seven disciples in total, the first being, verse 2, Simon Peter. We all know Peter, he is the uh, unofficial leader of the twelve, uh, but he's also the one who denied Jesus three times the night that he was arrested. And it's Simon Peter and John, in particular, who come into tight focus in this concluding chapter. Then we have Thomas, also known as Didymus. This, of course, is the famous Doubting Thomas of chapter 20, uh, but it's also the faithful Thomas of chapter 20 who says to the resurrected Jesus, My Lord and my God. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, which is where Jesus turned the water into wine and healed the official's son. Apostolic witnesses number 4 and 5 are the sons of Zebedee, that is, James and John, John being the author of this book. And the, the two other disciples, we're not told who those guys are, but they were all together. So, it's, these, it's to these seven apostles, the resurrected Christ now appears for the third time in John's Gospel. We have the resurrection appearance without Thomas present, with Thomas present, and now here by the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened, verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And I'll have you know that, this might be astonishing, but I used to fish all the time. When I was growing up, I lived in the Thousand Islands, in the St. Lawrence River, and my grandfather was what was known locally as a river rat, which actually isn't an insulting term. <laughs> uh, duck hunting, fishing, boating, the mighty St. Lawrence was in his blood. And he brought me along on many of his duck hunting and fishing expeditions. Actually, my grandfather, he had a, a unique approach to fishing. Um, he would have two fishing poles out at the end of his dock at all times. And, and these are poles that he could see from his couch. <laughs> and uh, so as he's watching a baseball game on TV, he would see one of the poles bend. And then he would just get off the couch and amble out to the end of the dock and reel in his fish, which actually isn't 100% legal. Um, but that's how river rats roll. All that to say, I'm not approaching this text this morning as a complete city slipper. I do know something about fish and fishing. Verse 3, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they, went out that, so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Fishing at night on the Sea of Galilee is actually the best time for fishing. Uh, it's still the custom today. That's when you do it. Verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore... 
But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Now that could be because it was too dark. It was just too early in the day and, that, and Jesus was too far away to see him clearly. We read later on that these men are about a hundred yards offshore. Or it could be because Jesus looked different. Uh, taken as a whole, the resurrection accounts provide a certain tension. On the one hand, Jesus' body can be touched, it can be handled and bear the marks of the wounds inflicted on his pre-death body. On the other hand, John tells us that Jesus apparently rose through his grave clothes and appears in the locked room and is sometimes not recognized. Uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus were kept from recognizing him, we read in the text, and Mary Magdalene uh, mistakes the resurrected Jesus for the gardener. Why that's the case, I don't know. Verse 5, he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Did you call it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, if my grandfather, the river rat, had been in this boat at this time, he probably would have muttered something nasty under his breath, because Christian don't want to hear this sort of advice from people standing on the shore 100 <laughs> yards away. Why Peter and the gang heeded this advice, I'm not sure. Maybe they're just tired and they're frustrated. Uh, but Jesus says this, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some, because he knows, he knows that there's a great school of fish on the starboard side. Just like he did in Luke chapter 5, when two boats almost sank because of all the fish that they caught. Verse 6b, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And that gives the Apostle John the clue he needs. Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the delightful way the Apostle refers to himself in this book, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, he was probably wearing a one cloth or a sleeveless tunic for work, and jumped into the water. So here we have Peter hurling himself into the sea, typical, impetuous Peter, and then swimming for shore, leaving his friends behind <coughs> to deal with all the fish. Verse 8, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Which is a, a detail that's so easy to skim over without really thinking about it. But just consider, the risen Lord, the resurrected Jesus Christ, has made his friends a hot breakfast after a long night's work. I find that striking. What's, what's the last thing you think the resurrected God-man would be doing with his precious time before ascending to the glory that he shared with the Father when he turned to pass? To my thinking, cooking up a fish breakfast for his friends, serving them in this fashion, is right at the top of the list. But that's because my estimation of the importance of service, the premium Jesus places on it, and modeled himself, is woefully inadequate. This is in the same vein, of course, as Jesus washing his disciples' dirty feet uh, after the Passover meal before going to the cross and die for them. It's up a piece of that. Jesus does 
that. But I feel put out to serve my new city brothers and sisters by giving up some of my time. I feel put out to go that extra mile to serve my wife, my neighbor. God forgive me. New City, here is a post-COVID clarion call to the importance of hospitality and service. As a church, we need to get back into the swing of those things again, out of hibernation. To paraphrase John F. Kennedy, ask not what the church can do for you. Ask what you can do for the members of your local church. Also, tangentially, I think what we're reading here in John 21 is just a little slice, just a little slice of the new heavens and new earth, what that's going to be like. Uh, I know it's going way outside the intention of the text, but I can't think of a reason why this pattern just wouldn't continue into eternity. Breakfast at Jesus' place in the new heavens and new earth. Serving one another, beloved, in our resurrection bodies for all eternity. Why would it stop? So, get in the habit, cultivate the discipline of doing this now, beloved, of serving one another, opening our homes in hospitality, now. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. In other words, I'm going to put that up for you too. Verse 11, Simon, so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 but even with so many, the net was not torn. And to be clear, there is no religious or spiritual significance whatsoever to the number of fish caught. They either divided up the fish for sale, and so they had to count them, or someone exclaimed, can you believe it? I wonder how many fish there are. And so they counted them. I mention that because sometimes you hear preachers getting kind of cute uh, with this number 153. They make it symbolic of all sorts of things. Don't go there. Just 153 fish. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And at this point, we need to try really hard to put ourselves in their place. Remember, these men are Jews. They're, they're Jews grappling with the strangeness of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Jesus' resurrection was not an anticipated event that required only enthusiasm and gullibility to win adherence among Jesus' followers. Some people thought that if Jesus died on the cross, well, it could only be because he deserved it. After all, he was pronounced guilty by a Roman court, by the Sanhedrin too, and that the whole Old Testament itself insists that anyone who hangs on a tree is under the curse of God. But Jesus didn't die because of his own sin. Rather, the scripture makes it clear, both Old Testament and New Testament, that Jesus was bearing the sin of others. He was being punished in the place of others. And his sacrifice so pleased God that God raised him from death. Jesus' resurrection is actually a form of vindication. It's proof positive. That when Jesus, what Jesus said with his dying breath on that cross, it is finished. When he said that, God the Father agreed. The work of redemption was accomplished. And so he was raised from death. But at this point, Jesus' disciples are just grappling with the concept 
of resurrection itself. We've had 2,000 years to get used to this idea. Of course Jesus rose from the dead. But this is brand new for them. Verse 13, Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And now, we come to the central event in the passage, Peter's reinstatement to service, verses 15 to 19. Brothers and sisters, these five verses are deeply, deeply encouraging. I, I asked this question a month ago at our joint service with Mount Pleasant, when we were in chapter 18. But let me put this to every believer in Jesus Christ here today. And let's ask this again. Christian, have you ever sinned, as a believer, have you ever sinned real bad? I mean, you totally blew it. And now maybe your, your marriage is hanging by a thread. Maybe you've said something to someone that you should never have said out loud. Or maybe you were caught doing something that drags the name of Jesus, your Savior, through the mud. Something that fills you with shame. Something that's showing you like nothing else, that there are mountains and oceans of remaining corruption in your heart. And if a sinner like you is to be saved on the basis of anything but God's grace, His unmerited favor, then you are without hope. Christian, have you ever sinned so bad and you felt so terrible that in a denial of the grace of the gospel and the love of your heavenly Father, you didn't feel, you didn't feel like you could raise your eyes towards heaven even and pray for forgiveness? Have you ever sinned so bad that Satan tricked you into not reading your Bible or praying because you weren't worthy or holy enough to partake in such a holy pursuit. And so you tried resorting to some good works to get back into God's good books, His love, some, some gospel-denying act of self-righteousness. Beloved, what does Jesus want from us in those moments? What does he want us to remember? How does he approach us? Never forget the Apostle Peter's reinstatement. Oh, what an encouragement this is. Never forget it. But let's take the time to set this up right. We've already considered Peter's denial from John's perspective in chapter 18. Let's turn to the parallel account in Luke 22. If you would turn there, Luke 22... Verse 54. This, this takes place the night before our Lord is crucified. Luke 22, 54. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Oh, woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and also said, You also are one of them. And I am not, Peter replied. 
But an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. That's the setup. That's what happened. So, back to John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And what we need to do at this point is link the following verses where Peter affirms three times over that he loves the Lord Jesus with his threefold denial. It's intentional. And just as Peter denied Jesus publicly, so the apostles' reinstatement, too, is public. Jesus asks Peter in verse 15, Do you truly love me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter boasted that he would lay down his life for Jesus, didn't he? Peter's boast said that even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Matthew 26, 33. And we see that Jesus gladly restores this broken man, but he makes Peter face his sin, declare his love, and receive a commission. He makes Peter face his sin, declare his love, and receive a commission. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And that question probes Peter to the depth of his being. I mean, man, how, how comfortable would any of us be having this sort of a dialogue with Jesus? Victoria, could you imagine Jesus asking you, Victoria, Raymond, do you love me more than the other members of New City Baptist Church? How are you supposed to respond to a question like that? Can there be a right way? <laughs> Peter's wise. In this case, he's wise. He does try to answer Jesus in terms of the relative strength of his love as compared to that of the other disciples. I love you, Lord, at level 8. Matthew only loves you at level 6. No, he appeals to Jesus' knowledge. He appeals to Jesus' omniscience. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. How many times have we all said that to Jesus? I, I really dropped the ball, Lord, but you know that I love you. You know it. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Despite my failure, I love you. You know I do. And Jesus accepts his declaration, and he gives the apostle a commission. Jesus said, feed my sheep. The Lord is saying, your love for me, Peter, and the evidence of your reinstatement 
are to be displayed in your pastoral care for my flock. This isn't evangelism. This is pastoring. Feed my lambs, Peter. Take care of my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep, Peter. And after all this back and forth, after this confession of love and commission, Jesus tells Peter that his discipleship will one day cost him his life. Verse 18, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. Perfect freedom. But when you are old, and here Jesus foretells the future, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus here is speaking of martyrdom. Stretch out your hands in the ancient world referred to crucifixion. This stretching out took place when a condemned person was tied to his cross member, the patipulum, and was forced to carry his cross to the place of execution. The cross member would be placed on the prisoner's neck and shoulders, his arms were then tied to it, and then he would be led away to death. Verse 19. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And what's amazing is that Peter lived and served Jesus for another 30 years with this death sentence hanging over his head. Can you imagine? Follow me, Peter, and at the end, I guarantee you'll be crucified for your faith. By the time John wrote his gospel, Jesus' prediction had been fulfilled. Peter had glorified God by his martyrdom, probably in Rome, under the emperor Nero. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then, he said to him, follow me. Brothers and sisters, here we have... What we have here, I think, is the forgotten doctrine of Christian discipleship. Or perhaps it's the deliberately neglected doctrine of Christian discipleship. Turn me quickly to Mark chapter 8. If you're using our church Bibles, that's found on page 1011. Mark 8.31. This ties in perfectly with what we're reading here. Mark 8.31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, this is before his crucifixion, must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So you see, picture our leader, our king, our messiah, our God, naked, ashamed, despised, and nailed to a cross. Picture our Lord in your mind's eye hanging on that wretched tree. Because in this text, our crucified king is teaching us that the true nature of our Christian discipleship is indissolubly linked with his suffering messiahship. Our discipleship, his messiahship. Both are suffering. Verse 24, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple, do you want to be the Lord's disciple? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
And remember, the only people in this culture who picked up their cross were condemned criminals. If, if your lot was to pick up your cross, that was the end. There was no more hope for you. There was only shameful and excruciating death. What would it mean if Jesus came to you, Freddie, Mary Jo, any of us, and said, strap yourself into the electric chair and follow me? We would know immediately how much triumphalism and self-interest and worldly victory and comfort should we reasonably expect in this life if the crucified God-man who seals our pardon tells us to follow him in death. Zero. Zero. That's the most expectation we should have for self-interest and triumphalism and comfort and worldly victory. We shouldn't be expecting this, but we do. Beloved, this is a call to take up our cross of self-denial, of shame, disgrace, and death, death to self, death to reputation, death to comfort, death to the world, perhaps even physical death. And yet, Jesus' language isn't an invitation here to, to masochism and to misery. This is an invitation, brothers and sisters, to life, to abundant life. This is what life, what true life is all about, what we become so duped by unbiblical ways of thinking. We have these spiritual blinders on when we come to living in this world. That this looks like a miserable sort of existence. I mean, if Jesus is trying to recruit people here to the cause, what a bad way of going about this. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me in death of Golgotha. What? Surely he's actually not being literal. He can't be serious. Surely we tell ourselves self-focus. That's where all the bounty and joy and contentment and purpose and meaning in life is found, right? No. Jesus says it's an infallible rule of the kingdom of God that self-focus issues in death. Mark 8.35 Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. While whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Just think of the price Jesus' disciples paid for their intimacy with Jesus. Every single one of them, except for John, were martyred. Christian, what are your expectations for the Christian life going into 2023? Triumphalism, self-interest, worldly victory, comfort. Banish that right now. Be certain you understand what our Lord Jesus has called you to when he called you as his disciple. The true nature of our Christian discipleship is indissolubly linked with his suffering messiahship. Never forget it. Pray for grace to remember this. Verse 20. Having heard this news, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? So this is John. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Ah, there's something of the old Peter right there. I'm, I'm sure Peter was delighted to be reinstated to service, 
his denials of Jesus Christ forgotten, forgiven, and, and, and newly entrusted with this responsibility to feed Jesus' lambs and sheep. Excellent, excellent. On the other hand, the certain prospect of death by crucifixion probably was now putting a crimp in his morning. So when Jesus, when Peter sees John, he asks, well, what about him? What about this guy right here? Don't tell me being your disciple is a walk in the park for John while I get nailed to a cross. Verse 22, Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Basically, Jesus tells him, Peter, it's none of your business what I have in store for John. You concern yourself with following me. You worry about that. Don't be so interested in my secret counsel regarding John's life and ministry. Which is a lesson we all need to take heart, isn't it? Follow Jesus. Regardless of what path he designs for his other followers, the other members of this church. You, brother, sister, you follow Jesus, no matter what. Regardless of the specific forms of obedience other Christians might pursue. You follow Christ. Bloom where God has sovereignly planted you. Be faithful. Be obedient. As a husband or a wife, as a single, as a father or a mother, as a son or a daughter, as an employer, as an employee, as a neighbor, as a member of this local church, follow through on your membership commitments. Serve. Be hospitable. Help others follow Jesus. Worship with us. Bloom where God has planted you. Be faithful. Be obedient. Verse 23. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple, John, would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So it's pretty clear uh, that the saying of verse 22 was widely circulated before this chapter was written. People knew that, that Jesus had said this and they misunderstood this. If I want to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As one commentator notes, it became an ill-advised but influential support for those whose eagerness for the return of Christ was not bounded by biblical restrictions. And there are all sorts of biblical restrictions regarding the return of Jesus Christ. Let's read 2 Thessalonians 2, Mark 13, Mark 24, 25, Romans 11. There are restrictions regarding the return of Christ. And so as long as John lived, that means with every passing year, he became more and more infirm, more and more feeble, understanding of the imminence of Jesus' return would just reach a more and more fevered pitch. He's 93 years old, and he can't last much longer now. Boy, oh boy, Jesus' return just must be just around the corner. But once the apostle dies, well, their faith is going to suffer a terrible, terrible blow. So what we have here is John trying to quash this rumor before he dies. No, Jesus didn't say that. He said, if I want him to remain alive. Interestingly, Augustine notes in the 4th century that there were some who attested even in his day that the Apostle John was alive. He was laying asleep rather than dead in his tomb in Ephesus. And, and the earth 
over the tomb supposedly was heaving up and down. He was breathing, waiting for the Lord to return. Good grief. 24, verse 24. This is the disciple, that's to say the beloved disciple, John. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And that we could be the elders of the church in Ephesus, or the members of John's church, perhaps even identifying themselves with the readers, as in all of us know that what the beloved disciple attests is true. That's possible. Or it could be the royal we, an editorial we. Remember uh, what John writes in his prologue, we have seen his glory, chapter 1, verse 14. And so the fourth gospel closes with a reminder that the author has done no more than make a selection from the mass of material available. Verse 25, Jesus did, did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John has written all he knows about Jesus, or all that can be written about him. If that were the case, the entire world would contain the books. After all, he is the second person of the triune God. Jesus is the incarnate Word. He was there in the beginning with God. He is God. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Which means verse 25 isn't hyperbole. It's no exaggeration at all on John's part. If all his deeds were described, the entire planet, would be incapable of containing all the books. Friend, do you want to get to the very heart of who Jesus Christ is and what his Heavenly Father sent him into this world to do? Not what the culture or the media or what various religions say concerning Jesus and his mission, but what the Bible itself says. Chapter 20 Verse 30. Let's go back to that again. We're going to close with this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you see? This is why John wrote his gospel. John's goal in writing his theological biography of Jesus is our personal salvation. That by believing, you may have life in his name. True life. Eternal life. That is the promise Jesus holds out to each of us this morning. John wrote these verses 2,000 years ago, but that is still the purpose of the book today. And it's a message Jesus has commissioned you, Christian, in the power of the Spirit, to proclaim to a lost world. Amen.